And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we are systematically making our way through this book. We are in 2 Timothy 3. And as you do, uh, probably the ultimate test of endurance is what is called a Spartan race. Just curious, anybody ever run one of those? I'm looking. Okay, well, it's not too late. Let me just tell you to whet your appetite what a Spartan race is. They range from a Spartan sprint, which is about uh, three plus miles, and it has about 20 plus obstacles, all the way, get this, you could do this on a Saturday, a 30 plus mile run with 60 plus obstacles, okay? It is the harshest terrain. It is the heaviest of carries. It's the coldest of water. And, and in case you're unfamiliar with the obstacles, let me just kind of tell you what you could do on a, on a Saturday. There's a, like a fire jump, which is always a great idea, climbing under barbed wire, uh, climbing all sorts of walls, including walls that are like heavily greased, which not even sure how that happens. Um, there's like the heavy object carries, mud crawling, like steep mud climbs. And so like if you're a parent, I want you to know that you're actually in training for this, okay? I mean, this is what you do on a weekly basis. But I tell you about Spartan races because life, life is kind of like a Spartan race. You know, it's hard enough to run a 5K or a 10K or a marathon, but to do so with all sorts of like really difficult obstacles, why, like that's just downright difficult. And life is like that. You know, it seems like it's, it's hard enough just to go through life, but then to experience significant obstacles. And not just a few, but many. And the reality is that we live in a fallen world filled with obstacles. But get this, the fallenness resides within us. All of this propensity to to walk away from God, to do life on our own, the evil that actually resides within, it makes life extremely difficult. And that's why when you come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, I want you to realize this. Difficult, difficult times will come. There is going to be an ever-increasing evil. You need to anticipate victory, but you need to be prepared for war. And so why is it so challenging to walk with God and to make disciples in a fallen world? This text tells you why. And it's going to give us what we need in order to thrive in our relationship with Christ. But let me show you, first of all, the first challenge that makes it so difficult to walk with God and make disciples. And that is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it's the depravity of the human condition. And when we talk about depravity, that actually speaks of the innate sinful condition in humanity. It shows up in our beliefs, in our behaviors that are contrary to knowing God and to walking in his will. And it is going to be manifest in this life. And so that's why he says, chapter 3, verse 1, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. These last days are the days from the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven with his promise that I'm going to return. And so with his return, with the rapture, where he captures away the saints and then begins a seven period of God's judgment upon the earth, It's this period of time. It's the period of time in which we live. These are the last days. And he said they're going to be difficult times, perilous, dangerous. And so what he does in in these next few verses, he's going to paint a graphic picture of the fallenness, of the depravity of humanity. It's the world 
in which we exist. It shows us the great need of the gospel. But he's going to paint this picture because this is description of life in the flesh. And so he shows us what it's going to look like, this world in which we live, what it's going to look like and, the, and how challenging it will be to walk with God and make disciples. So let me just begin here in verse 2. He says, For men will be lovers of self. Men are going to have this, this affection for themselves, their personal desires, and often in disregard to others. They are going to be, and as we just kind of read through this, lovers of money. They're materialists. They seek wealth and possession and as a means of power and control and security and personal identity. They are going to be, next, boastful. This is pointing at people who brag about their circumstances and their accomplishments and often overstate their abilities. They're going to be arrogant, which speaks to those who exalt themselves. And they're determined to have their own way and an inflated sense of their self-importance. Revilers. These point to patterns of speech that disregard and and disrespect the value of others. Look at this next one here. Disobedient to parents. This is when we have children who they just disregard, they disrespect, they dishonor their parents. They refuse to follow their parents' leadership while they're in their home. And when they're out of the home, they just completely disvalue their wisdom. They're going to set the parameters it's all part of this just, just disobedient to parents. When, when counsel and wisdom is needed, they'll turn away from it. And I'll tell you this, when you've got the breakdown of the family, the essential unit, that is the seedbed for the breakdown of society. I want you to know our role as parents are critically important to invest in important to our kids. And if, if kids do not learn how to just obey their parents from the right heart, then you know what happens? When it comes to other authorities, teachers, supervisors, legal authorities, that pattern has already been sent, and there's going to be some serious reckoning, difficult times until that is addressed. And then notice what else he says, looking again in verse 2. They will be ungrateful. Carries the idea that they're unthankful. They they actually have like an entitlement mentality. I I own this. I, I deserve this. You owe this to me. If you think about just ungratitude, think of all that God does for humanity every day and how little gratitude goes God's way. And then he says in verse 2, they are unholy. These are people who refuse to willingly give reverence to God. They set him and his word aside. They they simply live for themselves. And then he goes on in verse 3, they are unloving. It indicates a hard-heartedness especially toward those that should be nearest with. It's, uh, us, it's, the word is what we get, the, the loss of love for family. And he says, in the last days, that's going to be prevalent. It's going to make lives difficult. Again, do you see the attack and the, the disintegration, especially of close relationships like family? In the last days, you're going to see, verse 3, there'll be people who will be irreconcilable. They will not admit to wrongdoing. They will not forgive the offense of others. They simply will not be reconciled. Broken relationships, it's going to be their lifestyle, and they're going to cause a lot of damage. They will be, also verse 3, malicious gossips. It's an interesting word. It's the Greek word diaboloi. It's where we actually get the word devil from. And these malicious gossips, 
They spread falsehoods. They destroy the reputations of others, and they'll do it through libel and slander. Get ready. In the last days, that's what it's going to be like. He says they're also going to be without self-control. They're, they lose control of their selves. They're, 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 they have no restraints in terms of their feelings, their actions, their words. They speak their mind. They do what they want and they create a lot of destruction. They are, in fact, he says next word, look at that, brutal. It's the opposite of tame or civilized. It speaks of like wild animals. They simply will attack either physically or verbally. They are haters of Good. Do you see that? They love what is wrong. They hate what God describes as good, choosing often to despise it or oppose it. They are, notice even verse 4, as he continues to give this description of the last days, they are treacherous. It means to hand over. It was actually the word used of Judas. They betray others. They'll do it for personal benefit, often out of vengeance. They are reckless, rash, headstrong. They're unconcerned about how their actions affect others, whether it be their family, co-workers, classmates, or their friends. And then final two, they are conceited. It has the idea that they have an arrogant view of their own importance, their intellect, their abilities, their appearance, their heritage, and they manifest pride. And finally, he says, they will be lovers of pleasure. Do you see that? Hedonistic. They will pursue pleasure and leisure and attain it. And at times, it will be above all else. In fact, at times, they'll be moved, I just need immediate fulfillment now. And they're driven by these passions. He says, that is what it's going to be like. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. When you read through that description, does that sound familiar? That, my friends, is our society today. And it continues to progress exactly as God has given to us 2,000 years ago when he had the Apostle Paul write this letter to Timothy. And you see, the antidote, the only hope is that people would become lovers of God. But how is it that you go from being a lover of self, filled with all sorts of vile, to becoming a lover of God? Only one way, even one word the gospel, Jesus Christ, the kingdom gospel. Only God can transform lives, take sinners, cleanse them, redeem them, transform them by uniting his son with their lives where they experience forgiveness of sins, new life. His spirit resides within and you can actually become a lover of God. And I'll tell you this, it's loving God. That is the key to living well in a fallen world. Do you remember what Jesus said? The greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if it's loving God is the key to living well on this fallen world, what, what exactly does that mean, loving God? Well, let me just give you a simple description of, of what it looks like of loving God. And in fact, cultivate these patterns in your life. It's, it's knowing him, like really knowing him, not just knowing about him, but knowing him personally. Thanking him, resting in him obeying him. He's, he's given clear declaration in the word, trusting him and rejoicing in him. Worship, to rejoice in the Lord always. You see, when we're doing this, God prompts our hearts. He reminds us in the scriptures. We're, we're drawn to God as we get a clearer vision of him. Friends, this is the expression of loving God. And notice 
the world is not loving God, but we who do know him, we are to be lovers of God. This is where we find strength, joy, life. And if that's devoid in your life, let me tell you, this is where it's found, loving him. It's like, it's going like from black and white to color when we love God. You see, one of the great challenges of walking with God and making disciples in this world is the depravity of the human condition. And you see all these obstacles, but let me tell you, there's another that he highlights beginning in verse 5, and that is the deception of false teachers. And so he says, look at this, verse 5, he says, there will be some who will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And what he's going to do in verses 5 through 9, he is going to describe what false teachers look like. He's going to actually give their strategy. You see, we must be aware and alert. If you're not paying attention, if you want to see your church destroyed, let me tell you, it's going to be unchecked depravity. You just let sin run rampant. And the other is, you just, you're just really not concerned with false teaching. You'll just kind of buy what anybody's selling. You're not really exercising what's called discernment. You don't really know the Bible or the truth. And frankly, it doesn't become all that important to you. I want you to know there is an evil one who looks to bring destruction, to take a church and make it a shell of what it once was. And if you want to know what that looks like, he's going to spell it out to you right here. They are, first of all, these false teachers, they're going to hold to a form of godliness. They're going to come across as religious, deeply spiritual. Some of them are even going to self-identify as Christians. And what they want to do in order to control their adherence, they will also look to appeal and accommodate culture. And they will either add or subtract to the clear teaching of the word of God. And so he says, you need to avoid such men as these. People who have this agenda that will bring about destruction, that are not in keeping with orthodox teaching of the scriptures, they're not doctrinally sound, you don't just hang out with them. He says, avoid them. That's what the scripture says. And then he's going to outline their strategy. So, well, how is it they can be so effective? Paul says, Timothy and all who will read this letter, this is how it happens. Look at verse 6. First of all, they infiltrate. For among them are those who enter into households. They make entry in any way possible. So through the TV, their shows, they're perhaps even like, maybe they can get on the radio. They certainly must have like a website. They've got literature that you need to read. They're trying to enter your heart in any way possible. They're, they have like a social media platform and they're looking to gain people adherence, to listen, to buy into their ideas. And they're going to come across as like really credible and very likable, maybe even like scholars per se, certainly religious authorities. Maybe they just want to try to convince you, just, just read my book. I've got the answers. So they begin with infiltrate. You see that? For among them, who, those who enter into households. And next, then, they try to manipulate. Once they get in, once they got your heart, your, your mind, you're now like, hey, I'm kind of interested in this. This actually sounds well. All of a sudden, I can make Christianity adapt to the cultural trends. They'll manipulate. In fact, that's what he says. Verse 6, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. They're always learning. 
and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They captivate, that is, by the way, a military term for captivating prisoners of war. And that's what they do. They manipulate. And they're going to prey upon, in this case, he's found, he says, uh, and Timothy, you know about this. Likely this was occurring in Ephesus. Because this isn't like, well, this is what all women are like. Uh, this is not a general statement about the female sex. He's, he's reminding Timothy of what happened. Women who were weighed down with their sins. They really wanted a solution. Perhaps they were, you know, morally compromised. And he says, these false teachers just moved in and they took over. They began to manipulate their minds and their hearts. They have come across as, oh, I'm really concerned about you. I can really identify with your feelings and your heart. They, they may come across as spiritual authorities. You need to trust me. I'm a scholar. I've, I've really studied these things out, and I know a lot more than you and anybody else that might want to influence your life, and they draw you in, and it'll be almost like magnetic. And in this case, these women are like, I really want help. And they're like, hey, I can provide what you need. You just come this way. I want you to know that that was a practice of pseudo-Christian sex uh, all from the, from the very beginning of Christianity. You have like Gnostics. And I want you to know it's practiced even today. You've got false teachers everywhere. We're not really quick to identify. In fact, that goes against the grain of culture. You can't call anybody a false teacher. It's just a different opinion, okay? Or they have just a different take or a new take or a progressive take or whatever. And so you see this, and you see like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. They, they desperately want to identify with Christianity, but they have a completely different Jesus. Well, they certainly have what they call Jesus, but he's not the Jesus of the Scriptures, and it happens in universities and in different, even churches, Christian, quote-unquote, ministries. It's everywhere, and they look to manipulate. But then finally, they, they separate people from the truth and those who teach it. Do you see that? Verse 8, And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. And so, Jonathan Jambres, these were the two Egyptian um, magicians that Jewish tradition identifies that opposed Moses. Remember that? These are the magicians like, hey, what are you doing? Okay, I can replicate that until I can't, right? And they, what they did is they were trying to separate the people of God from the truth and from those who were teaching it. And so, it's to separate them, and that's what they're doing. And I want you to know that's exactly what cults do and religious organizations that are, they're, they're walking away from essential doctrines. They got a new twist, new definitions. And I will tell you this, the absence of truth makes way for the presence of lies. So if you don't have a strong diet of the truth, if you're not really engaged in the scripture, if you're at a church that never really gets around to helping you get grounded, you are a prime suspect to be duped to be taken over, to be made captive. And what you want to look for is when discerning truth from error and spiritual leaders is this, their communication. What do they really say about the Savior, salvation, the Scripture? Is, is the Bible the source of spiritual truth? They, do they actually believe in inerrancy, that it's without error, that it's infallible, that it's trustworthy? What do they believe? And what do they dismiss? Then look at their character. Look at their motives and their mindset. What are, are they about the glory of God 
and the exaltation of God and living out his truth? Or is it really actually, when you get to the heart of it, personal prestige, popularity, financial gain, or cultural acceptance? And then look at their community. I mean, how do their teachings affect the people that are following what's being said by them? Does it cultivate a love for Jesus Christ and a commitment to the clear teaching of the word, or not so much? Breakdown of the unity of the faith and a lack of holiness of lifestyle. You see, they are going to be sincere, but it is possible to be sincerely wrong, and they are. You see, untracked depravity and the deception of false teachers, they'll create real destruction. In the mountains of southern Brazil, there is a really magnificent tree. It's called the Brazilian walnut tree, okay? And these are in the mountains in the ranges from like 2,500 feet to about 4,000. These are magnificent trees. Uh, these trees can grow to up to 130 feet tall. The, uh, the trunk can be like six feet in diameter. They're majestic trees. They just have one enemy, and that enemy is called the strangler fig. And so what happens? The little spores of a sprinkler fig, seeds, they, they land into the Brazilian walnut tree, and they begin to just sink down roots until they can get down to the ground. And it just kind of keeps spreading. And what happens is it takes over the entire tree. It looks like innocuous, like no big deal. I mean, this is a huge, magnificent tree. But what the strangler fig does, and as it establishes then roots into the ground, it then constricts and literally kills the tree until that all that is left is, it looks like a tree, and here's an example of one, but it's hollow. In fact, it leads to the complete death and deterioration, and so it looks like a tree, but it's not. I want you to know, this is what has been happening to untold numbers of churches. Once, had a vibrancy of Christ, for Christ, the gospel went forth, there was a love for Jesus, the word was being pro- taught. People were growing, worshiping. The gospel was going forth. Missionaries were sent. And Stranglevig came in. It was never addressed. And so you, you can take tours of these places, pay money. That's the only way they keep these places even open. They're just a shell of what they once were. And I want you to see what he says in verse 9. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jonas and Jambres' folly was also. Sooner or later... False teachers, it's going to be made known. They were lost and led people astray. Time and truth will bring clarity. Please always remember that. Time and truth, it'll always bring clarity. You see, what is needed are Christ-centered disciples who are developing spiritual depth, biblical discernment, and they're being transformed by Jesus. They're demonstrating and manifesting a contagious love for the Lord, a first-place love for God himself. And that is what is needed. You see, just like athletes, you need to train if you're going to do a Spartan race. Like if you were like, man, what you were talking about at the beginning, I really want to do that. Next week, I'm signing up. I'm going to do one next week. Probably not so well, right? You've got to train if you're going to do that. I want you to know, walking with God and making disciples, you're going to have to develop. You're going to have to train And let me just tell you what is going to be needed. Followers of Jesus, we must engage our culture and the people that are separated from Christ with the following. First of all, the truth of the gospel of Christ. There's no hope. You never become a lover of God apart from the gospel, right? 
So we, we tell them with our words. But we also, we need to engage a lost society with the testimony of our lives in Christ, our way of life. It's like a fragrant aroma. It's life-loving God. But finally, we also have to have a thought-out biblical worldview. Our worldview, what we truly believe as Christians, must be manifest, discussed. I know that the culture wants to absolutely completely dismiss you, silence us. But no, we represent Christ and his kingdom. And so you're like, well, what is a worldview? Everyone has a worldview. Whether you're a Christian or not, every person has a worldview. Chuck Colson simply said, it's just the sum total of our beliefs about the world. Or Gary Phillips and William Brown explain, a worldview is, first of all, an explanation and interpretation of the world, and second, an application of this view to life. So every worldview addresses these eight subjects. Like, for instance, addresses God, whether you're an atheist or believe uh, theistic and believe in a personal God. It addresses knowledge, origin, the origin of the universe, origin of people. It addresses humanity, like people, and why they are the way they are. And it addresses, like, why is there human suffering? Ethics and morality. Salvation, like, what is the human problem and how is it resolved? It addresses the meaning of life and final destiny. Every worldview has answers to that. And a person's worldview, it really, hopefully, it's logically consistent. Although you, when you engage in conversations with people, you'll find out like, well, I haven't really thought about this too much. And your worldview gets started very early, like from infancy. And you learn, you develop a worldview, starting probably with your parents, and then there's school, and if you're involved in, in something religious, uh, science, media, what you hear, your friends, your worldview continues to be formed, fashioned, and shaped. But what is really important is that we as Christians, we are in the kingdom of heaven. We represent Christ, that we understand, we believe, and we're communicating a biblical worldview. I, want you, I know that the culture wants to silence us, but we're called to be representing Christ. And so let me just kind of give you like, first of all, an, a worldview is going to give you like a meta-narrative, a grand overview of the entirety of the universe and the history of the universe. And so let me just give you, first of all, it starts with the self-existent triune God of revelation, the God who reveals himself. So it begins with the self-existent one. But then there is creation. Then there is the fall that you would like read about, like in Genesis 3. Then there's redemption, how God sends a redeemer. There's restoration, how God restores. And then finally, there is a new creation. Now, um, a Christian's worldview is unique to any other worldview that is out there. And there are a lot of them. But a Christian's worldview is unique because it is sourced on the absolute authority of Scripture. It, it recognizes a sovereign, personal, triune God. And it is sourced in the Word of God. And the, I want you to know that the Scriptures that God has given us, this God of Revelation, it answers and gives us very good answers to the questions that every person has. I'll just give you the kind of questions these compelling answers, like, how did the world and all that is in it come into being? Genesis 1 and 2. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Like Genesis 3. 
By what standard can I determine whether a knowledge claim is true or false? You can look at John 17, 17. How does the world function? How should it function? You can look at Psalm 24, 1. What is the nature of a human being? What is the basis for hope for humanity? What is one's personal uh, uh, purpose for existence? How should one live? Is there any personal hope for the future? What happens to a person after they die? Everybody would like to know that. I want you to know you can know that. What, how is it possible to even truly know what is true? How does a person determine even right and wrong? I mean, where does that kind of morality even get established? What is the meaning of human history? And what does the future hold? I want you to know that as Christians, because of the Word of God, we actually have real answers. We actually have God's answers to this. In fact, that's what we're going to be studying this week in all of our life-giving discipleship groups. You see, in a biblical worldview must be developed. You can't not take a, well, I'm going to take a pass on that. No, you have a worldview. You want it to be developed. And so you're like, well, okay, well, then how do I do that? Well, first of all, a biblical worldview is developed by just being taught the scriptures and studying the Bible. So as you're reading the Bible, as you're studying, you're diving into passages, and you're hearing messages taught from the scripture, what is happening is your worldview is being shaped by God's spirit through his word. But then you also need to understand how the forces of culture interface with the principles of the Bible, okay? So if you're like, help me out with culture, I'll take you back to sociology. Culture is simply this. It's the learned set of values, beliefs, norms, and social practices of a group of people in a particular time in a particular setting. And so every culture is going to be promoting a worldview. And what you want to do is see like, well, How is that, how does it relate to biblical truth, if it does at all? But see, you see, what's happening here is we're no longer conformed to this world, but God is calling us to be, through the renewing of our mind, engaging our world intellectually and from the heart, like we're with understanding. And so, like, if you're like, well, give me an example of, like, how culture is affecting worldview. Secular humanism. It's simply the idea that you can find morality and self-fulfillment apart from God. And it is the driving force in Western civilization. In fact, John Stone Street said this, Secularism is the default state of our culture. Its power is not in confronting and disproving Christian truth claims. Its power is in privatizing and dismissing Christian truth claims as if they're only personal, private preferences. Secularism and postmodernism, which reject any constant or definite truth, profoundly impact Western culture. And it does. So, like, let me just give you culture. So, for instance, when you see, like, just this complete promotion of cohabitation or pornography, whether it's like we're going to introduce this into our school libraries or bookstores or wherever, or, or just saturate the, the web with it, I want you to know that's a, a worldview That has come into play. Uh, Condoning homosexual behavior, adultery, the acceptability of of abortion, or just even like, let's completely redefine that. I I want you to know that what's happening, that is a promotion of a worldview. And as Christians, we have definite positions on this based on the truth of Scripture. 
But the absence of truth will make way for the presence of lies. You need to, as a Christian, ask, like, how much has the culture actually really influenced me? You might be surprised. And then finally, we develop our worldview by discerning how current events interface with the timeless truth of Scripture. So as things are reported and media reports them, well, how does this interface with a biblical worldview? When you look at morality and ethics and societal issues and international developments, and they're happening all the time, the thinking Christian is saying, okay, I see these things. How do I respond? How do I understand these things? How do I reconcile them with biblical truth. And friends, what we're talking about here is of extreme importance because you see, we live in a fallen world and we have fallen bodies, right? I mean, we all have the propensity at times and can manifest the condition of fallenness. But Jesus, Jesus cast a new vision for his people. He did it on the Sermon on the Mount and I know you're familiar with it, but let me remind you, If you are a follower of him, you and I are what? The salt of the earth. And you and I are the light of the world. Why? Because Christ has taken up residency in our life. We're building our life on the firm foundation of the rock. We're going deep so we will stand strong. And that has always been God's intent. That you and I are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. The presence of Jesus in a fallen world. And loving God is the key to living well in this fallen world. When we do, we're going to have clarity. We're going to have confidence. And we're going to have courage, all of which God seeks to instill in his people so that we'll shine brightly for him. Let me pray. Would you just bow your heads? Lord, we come before you. And we're asking God right now that if there is someone here who has never truly come to trust you, They know about you, but as we actually just discovered just what depravity looks like, they're like, my goodness, that's my life. That's me. I need forgiveness, so God, would you forgive me? I trust that Jesus is the payment for my sins. I believe the gospel. Fill me with your life. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, God, we need your strength. Help us to represent you well, to be unashamed of the gospel, to be able to speak it, to share our testimony of your grace in our lives, that we would manifest the love of Christ with how we live and how we lead, and that, Lord, we would be continually finding you developing our biblical worldview and that we would live it out for your glory. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.